Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. Discover the power within Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Our topic today is Transforming America's Racial Karma. And my guest today is Dr. Larry Ward, the author of the book we will be talking about today, America's Racial Karma, An Invitation to Heal. The assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was the catalyst that sparked Larry Ward's journey into a life of planetary peacemaking. He is ordained as a Dharma teacher in Thich Nhat Hanh's Plum Village tradition and has accompanied Thich Nhat Hanh on peacebuilding missions internationally, as well as throughout the United States. Dr. Ward brings 25 years of experience in organizational change and local community renewal in 20 countries to his work as co-founder and director of the Lotus Institute and as an advisor to the Executive Mind Leadership Institute at the Drucker School of Management in Claremont, California. Dr. Ward holds a PhD in religious studies with an emphasis on Buddhism and research on the neuroscience of meditation. You can learn more about the work of the Lotus Institute at their website, thelotusinstitute.org. Welcome, Larry Ward. I am so delighted to have you join me today on the Yoga Hour. Well, thank you, Laurel, for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here as well. So before we dive into our dialogue about transforming America's racial karma, let's begin with a moment of contemplation. So let's begin right where we are, whatever we're doing, and bring our attention to our body, feeling all of the surfaces that support ourselves, perhaps feeling our feet on the floor for sitting, feeling the weight of our body supported by the chair, just bringing ourselves fully present. And then bringing our attention to the breath, wonderful tool that's always with us and noticing as we take a fully conscious breath, noticing the inhale and the exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the next exhale, feeling the warm air flowing out. And as we rest here, right where we are, here's something to contemplate. Here is a prayer from Paramahansa Yogananda from his book, 
Whispers from Eternity. The kingdom of my mind lies clogged with the dirt of delusion. Pour the showers of thy power into my city of spiritual carelessness. Send thy streams of mercy to inundate the cruelty of ignorance within myself. Let the downpour of thy love wash away the embankments of race, color, and class prejudice. Let the downpour of thy love wash away the embankments of race, color, and class prejudice. Bathe the untidy children of my thoughts with the waters of thy wisdom. So once again, Dr. Larry Ward, welcome to the Yoga Hour. I am very grateful to have you on the show to discuss this important topic of race. Your book, America's Racial Karma, An Invitation to Heal, um, has been really helpful to me personally and is a wonderful resource that I recommend to listeners. I really got a lot out of the history that you talk about really tracing the roots of racism back several hundred years. So as an American black man, long time student of Thich Nhat Hanh and a Dharma teacher in the Buddhist tradition, you bring a unique perspective to racial justice in this country. I'd also add, I appreciated your perspective of having lived around the world and realizing this is not an American problem, but a global, a global issue. So I wanted to start by having you read the poem you wrote that's at the beginning of the book, as I thought it was a, a wonderful introduction to this work. Would you, would you do that? Sure, I'd be happy to. Our racial suffering is deep and wide. It is a particular kind of samsara, repeated cycles of bitterness, pain, and fear. It is sustained by our conditioning, both individual and collective. It is the undercurrent of a failed paradigm of aggression, ownership of peoples, and enduring institutionalized racism. This failed paradigm of views presents us with a profound opportunity to rebuild the shape of our thinking, speech, and action as we can and must redefine what it means to be a human being. And I thought that really captured the essence of what the book is about, really redefining the the essence of what it means to be human and touching into that humanity, recognizing that with so much of, of the history of race has been dehumanizing and um, a loss of that common humanity. So you begin the book by describing a trip that you took with your wife from your home at that time in Ashland, North Carolina, Asheville, wasn't it? North Carolina yes, to Asheville. a, yeah, to a retreat across the state in Chapel Hill. So can you briefly describe that experience and what was revealed to you about systemic racism in our country at that time? And I, I think perhaps you were very struck by it because you had not been living in the United States, as I recall, for a while before that. Is that right? Mm -hmm. 
Yes, that's correct. So, um, first, it's not my first visit to that part of the United States or traveling through the South. I did some teaching and work and preaching in the late 60s and early 70s in these regions. But since then, I traveled the world in new ways, lived in Thailand and worked there for a few years at an international school, training students and teachers in mindfulness practice and meditation. Came back to the United States, went to Asheville, and then on this drive to see a friend of ours who's a professor at the university, retired professor at the University of North Carolina. I was just, um, well, South Carolina, I was just stunned by the shift in energy on our drive and the appearance of Confederate symbols everywhere. Mm -hmm. And the question rose in me in a new way, how and why does this continue? Mm And that led to the book. Yeah. So one of the things that you write, I'm going to, I'm going to quote here, you write to the reader. I appreciate your opening this book because I know it takes a certain conscious courage to read anything related to the word race in the title, because there are few other words in the English language that can activate our autonomic nervous systems so quickly. <laughs> and I must say, I totally felt the truth of that in my body as I was, was reading this book. It's, it's a difficult subject to contemplate. It's difficult to see our part in it. It's difficult to see how deeply pervasive racism still is in this, in this country and in this world. So what was your goal in writing your book, America's Racial Karma? My, my goal for writing the book was to create a narrative of understanding. Um, in, in Buddhist terms, um, I, I look at how things come to be. Mm-hmm. And once you understand how things come to be, you can understand how they cannot come to be. But if you don't understand how this came to be, you can't untangle it because its energy and power continues through our inability to face it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. So in your book, you describe the doctrine of discovery. So what is the doctrine of discovery and why is it that you consider it a religious scandal? Well, first of all, the doctrine of discovery is 500 years ago was a papal edict, um, first from the Catholic tradition and soon followed by the Protestants and <laughs> with a similar model that basically said, uh, those of us from Europe are free to conquer the world. Right. And it made it all okay. It made right. it all okay. And stealing the, the, and the stealing and the rest of the world was considered heathens. That's right. the actual language. Not right. barely worthy of being human. Humanity was questioned. Right. And for me, for a religious institution to be in such great denial of what humanity is means right. for me it's a religious scandal. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It was permission. To, exactly. 
to actually go against the tenets of of Christianity of the teachings, right? yeah. To to steal, to take yeah. things that didn't belong. And you also point out that the history of race in the United States really goes far beyond, far back beyond uh, the the history of slavery, and began with uh, with our treatment of the Native Americans, which no question about it totally falls under this doctrine of discovery. Exactly. When you think about all of the all of the injustice and and the way that native peoples were viewed as as less than as exactly. as subhuman which then once it's an us versus them once right. once the the concept is out there that this is a subhuman species subhuman group of individuals then it um, it makes it makes it all okay and then you also really draw in to the book this strain we were chatting a bit about it in before we started the program about the um the inherited inherited trauma that we know about um that it's been shown that that um, for example i think children of holocaust survivors have mm -hmm. certain characteristics of you know changes in their nervous systems mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from the fact that it, it was not they who were you know, who were in the concentration camps, it was their parents. And yet there are, there are seeds of that, that manifest in the bodies mm -hmm. of the children of Holocaust survivors. So, and you talk about it very eloquently with uh, um, this idea, this Buddhist idea of these seeds in our consciousness, seeds in our consciousness. And um, as I mentioned, I really uh, love the image that you had of it's like a wildflower field. So there's all these different seeds there. And then what is it that gets watered is the question, right? Yes, that's always the question. So for me, there's a dialogue uh, that we must face between uh, our human nature and how we nurture it. And... Um, when I was doing my doctoral work, one of the debates that was always going on was, uh, is human behavior a result of human nature? Are we just wired that way? Or is it a result of human nature? And my conclusion, based on my research and others, is it's 100% of each. Ah. <laughs> so it really matters what we nurture. Right. And this is where spiritual practice, spiritual consciousness, comes in so that we can be aware of what energies, thoughts, language, and actions we bring to ourselves and therefore bring to the world around race. And this, this, this is also not just a mental thing, it is neurological because it builds habit patterns in our neural pathways. Right. So one of the things that you talk about in the book is having us uh, each having a racialized consciousness. So so what what do you mean by that? And I guess first I wanted to clarify because um, you use the term in the book white supremacy, and I think in our current day in America, when we think about white supremacy, we think about the white supremacist groups. Oh, we think about yeah. the Proud Boys, or we think mm -hmm. about you know, mm -hmm. and and realizing that that really when you're pointing to white supremacy, it's it's not that. That is a, perhaps a, more of a conscious choice and an individual choice that people make to participate in those groups. And we can all say, oh, that's not me. Right. But 
um, when we talk about white supremacy, it's actually the the uh, systemic, not the individual, the systemic and the unconscious way that that has been in our system for centuries, as as you point out. So these are the things that um, it's it's that attitude of mind that looks at uh, the uh, white person or white individual as somehow better than, more human than, more valid than um, someone of color. Would yes, you... and it's that systemic nature of white supremacy is difficult for Americans to understand because we've been so conditioned to see ourselves as individuals. Right. And so we imagine holding ourselves accountable for being individuals, et cetera, et cetera. And the fact is, we are like fish and we swim in water. And the water we swim in influences our individuality, influences our minds, our thoughts. Uh, So for me, white supremacy is institutional, psychic. It is a psychic vibration and a background in consciousness like ocean is to fish, and if you ask a fish where they are, most of them will not know. They've never so is been this, out of the water. Well, exactly. It's impossible for us to see the water if we are the fish. Um, so is this what you mean then when you talk about racialized consciousness? Yeah, and, and at the macro level, yes. From a historical perspective, over the last 500 years and the descriptions of the differences of skin and their implied capacities was written down. It still is the images out of which we operate. When I read about what happened last week, well, this week in San Francisco with the Chinese, another another Asian person attacked, hmm. uh, well, three actually in one day by one, by one uh, person one unwell person um, who feels permission. Mm. This arrogance comes out of this self-centeredness that has been kidnapped by greed and hate and delusion, Mm. to go back to Yogananda's poem. Yes, yeah. Right, the, um, again, one of the things that you that you talk about is intent. Um, I'm just seeing it. Yeah, let's go ahead and go there. So you okay. give us a diagram, you know, in the book that you've entitled "The Wheel of America's Racial Karma," and you um, this idea. Maybe we should first start with with uh, karma. So um, karma is something in the Buddhist tradition. It's also something in the, in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Um, in fact, the Sanskrit words karma and kriya come from the same root kri, which means to do our actions. So these are actions. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're taught that our personal karma is not set in stone. Uh, we can change it by the seeds that we plant or the seeds that we choose to water, as we were talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Um, and karma covers everything that's included in the phrase thought, word, and deed, which is part of this diagram. So can you let's start with the the beginning of this this process, which is intent. So can you talk about that? Talk about intent and this and this diagram that you have of the wheel of America's racial karma. 
Sure, and intent can be challenging for, for any of us to be conscious of our own motivation. And uh, this is why, again, spiritual practice is so important, to be able to check in on ourselves to see what my motivation is around race, the earliest work that still, we're still stuck in the stereotypes of the early uh, supposedly scientific uh, analysis of the human species. And, and the intent that was apparent from the simple diagram I put in the book was to, to diagram, to categorize European species as superior to all other human species. And then it kind of went down, <laughs> kind of went down a ladder. Uh, and you know, I ended up at the bottom <laughs> of this ladder of human value, human worth, human capacity. Mm. And so the intention was to, and to be quite frank, to place white male consciousness at the center of the world. Mm. That was the intent. And we're still dealing with that. That's how powerful intention is. So mm. what I mean by karma is the fruits of intention, the outcome of intention. And you know, many, many people will claim, well, I didn't, in, in understanding, you may intend something, and what you intend does have an effect on you and on others. And if other people get on the race wave, which they did about 300 years ago, it wasn't that big of, you know, it got really popular to be white, <laughs> to go into that narrative, and for identity, and for meaning, and for wealth building, and et cetera. Um, and you know, people are still riding that horse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you point out in the book that looking at intent can be tricky because there's so much of our behavior and patterns that don't come from a conscious place that the brain takes shortcuts and everyone has experienced this, um, Perhaps people aren't driving to work anymore, but uh, it's the one that, that I think of where you get in your car at home and you're conscious of getting in your car at home and all of a sudden you kind of wake up and you're at work. Well, obviously you drove there. You know, exactly. <laughs> you went all that way, but if you try and remember exactly how you got there, the brain was busy doing other things. You're thinking about something totally unrelated, and yet, nevertheless, you navigated traffic. You stopped at all the red lights. Hopefully, right. you did everything yes. you were supposed to do. You get to work. Um, so that's an example of this automaticity that we have, and often, as you point out the intent is something that we're not really aware of. And so part of the process of, of waking up in this life from a spiritual perspective is really looking at that intent and asking the kinds of questions that you ask in the book about, well, what is my intent? What is mm -hmm. my intent here? And, and from an ancestor point of view, what do I want to pass on? What, what do I want to transmit to generations to come about being a human being. And I, I, I'm amazed still that we spend so much time and energy in conversations 
uh, around race that result in the same pattern. And that's how I know we have to go deeper in our consciousness to have it transform. So the book is really an invitation to heal, but the next step is to do transformational work, which means recognizing our conditioning, naming our conditioning, each person doing their own internal mm, investigation so they can untangle their own racial knots. And as they do that, the knots in society have less power. Yes. In fact, that process that you're just describing of self-study is one of the three key practices of Kriya Yoga as put forth in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, that self-study when we're looking at ourselves and asking ourselves these kinds of questions, for example, about intent, that would be one of the practices of self-study. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. really, really beautiful example of that. So in the, um, we've got about a minute and a half before the break. So say something else about the, the wheel of America's racial karma. I know there's so much there, but can you give us another little um, piece sure. of it? Sure. Our intentions are always manifest, whether our intentions are conscious or unconscious. Hmm. They always show up in our thoughts, in our language, and in our actual physical behavior. And the next piece of the wheel is that, that act, those actions transmit that intent for others. Mm. So where people are uh, stimulated, triggered, amplified, uh, this is in part where for me I had the insight that, that there's an energy in white superiority that has uh, uh, chemical effects on the brain. Hmm. that is almost akin to worship, hmm. a religious experience of belonging to a special group. And, uh, you know, and that's not unusual in the history of human beings, but we're specifically talking about race in America. And then whatever we transmit, there is outcomes. This is retribution. And retribution, I don't mean vengeance or any, I just mean this happened and that happened because this happened. Right. <laughs> this didn't just happen out of nowhere. And with that, we've come to the close of the first part of the program. So you're listening to the Yoga Hour. Our guest today is Dr. Larry Ward, author of the book we're talking about today, America's Racial Karma, an Invitation to Heal. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us at yogahour at unity.fm. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. We come back from the break, we'll explore more about America's racial karma and how healing this very deep wound is possible. We'll be right back. How much time do we have? Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA Unity ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash divine 2022 Thanks for joining us. 
This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour Insights and Practices for Spiritually Conscious Living. Welcome back from the break. I am Dr. Laurel Trujillo here today with Dr. Larry Ward, who was ordained as a Dharma teacher in the Thich Nhat Hanh's Plum Village tradition and who has accompanied Thich Nhat Hanh on peacebuilding missions internationally and within the United States. He's the author of the book we're discussing today, America's Racial Karma, An Invitation to Heal. So, Larry, we've talked a little bit about this wheel and the importance of intent of trying to do self-study and understand intent, the intent behind it, often of which you may need to dive deep for because it may be an automatic thing that -hmm. you're doing without realizing it. So what is the axis of the wheel? What do you describe as the axis of the wheel? Well, the axis of the wheel comes uh, from my practice and work and study with from the Yogacara tradition of Buddhism, um, which is a meditative tradition. And they describe the axis of consciousness uh, in a a both positive and negative way as manas Mm -hmm. or self-centeredness or self-cherishing that gets kidnapped or misdirected by greed, by hate, or by delusion. And so it, as I looked at this, um, it became clear to me that unless we go deep into our own understanding of self-cherishing, and so that our spiritual consciousness is also social consciousness, they are not separated. And um, we may think they are, but they are not, because our thinking, our speech, and our behavior, both in what we act, what we do, and what we don't do, has impact on society's fabric. Yes, absolutely. What we do and what we don't do, absolutely. So, and I was struck as you were describing it. Again, very similar types of of ideas and understanding in the yoga tradition. In the yoga tradition, there are these um, um, these mistaken um, places that we really get caught up. The biggest of which, of course, is is misidentifying ourselves as the ego, mm-hmm. and the ego is built as a matrix of ideas mm-hmm. based on you know on um, attachment and aversion. So right. liking our likes and our exactly. you know and our and our dislikes. So um, the subtitle of your book is an invitation to heal, which I personally appreciated. I I I thought um, again it it is a uh, race is a heavy topic and one that triggers my own autonomic nervous system. Mm-hmm. So the idea, even in the starting from the title, that there's, there's a possibility of healing is um, hopeful. So would you say more about that, about this, this possibility, this opportunity to heal that, is, that you see as present in this question okay. of America's racial karma? Well, um... The, the word invitation to me was very important because this gets back to intent. 
do you intend to heal around race? Um, and I share a short story from the New Testament, actually, about a man by the pool who was sick for 38 years. Nobody would help him. Jesus came by and said, do you really want to get well? Mm. So for me, that's the racial question that's on our table. Do we really collectively and individually want to get well from the horror of using the narrative of 1% of our genetic characteristics to define 100% of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and let's let's just take a moment to to mention that a little further because this idea of race that as you go through in the book goes way back hundreds of years. I was really interested in the material that you had on Linnaeus, mm -hmm. who I was familiar with just from my medical training as someone right. who was a a uh, um um he put together a, a system of, of looking at thing, a, a classifying things, right. but I was not aware of his classification of race that yes. he had separated. They actually was looking at it as different species or subspecies, exactly. I guess, of yeah, homo exactly. sapiens. And that um, clearly the one that you wanted to be was the, was the homo Europeanist. Or whatever exactly. it was. You, know, you, didn't, you didn't want to be Asianist or any of these other ones right. because they were definitely just a whole, a whole um, grab bag of yep. negative, you know, stereotypes. So, but, um, but really pointing out for people that there is no genetic race, that yep. there's not a, there's not a chromosome or a way of, of identifying race genetically. Right. Which I think is, is fascinating. The more that we understand now we have the genome project that's really looked at our, you know, at our yep. genes. So that's also very hopeful and very much in alignment with this, this teaching, this yoga teaching that we really are all one. We're all manifestations of the one. For sure. And in terms of healing, I, my work is now focused on, um, the nerve continuing on the nervous system, but in terms of transformation of our healing journey, we have to work at the level of our neural septivity, our primal sense of safety, danger. And so around race is what I meant by my earlier comment about activation of our nervous system. We don't know how to be safe. Mm with that experience, with that language. We don't know how to be welcome to one another and to reinforce one of your earlier comments. I've also looked at uh, trauma and resiliency and healing in, in from Holocaust survivors and their families. And one of the key things uh, I've learned that's been learned, as you mentioned, is that one of the keys to healing is safety. Mm. And right now we don't know how to be safe together. Yeah. And we don't know how because we've been trained not to be safe together. Right. In fact, some of us got killed for, for trying to be together. Yeah. And it didn't matter who you were. Right. When you got killed for trying to be together. Yeah. And so we have to work at deep levels of practicing in ways that we can identify our own nervous system's sense of safety and learn how to extend that beyond ourselves and then uh, into our environments, into our society. And then we have to work together to recreate ways 
of recognizing how we welcome one another to this world. Mm. As you were speaking, I was reflecting on the way you've organized the book, which is in three sections, which are deep, deeper, and deeper still. And there was something about that that was very beautiful to me of looking at looking at this question from that perspective. So so thank okay. you for that. Yeah, sure. Um, you share a quote in the book from Martin Luther King Jr., which is, beloved community is our only salvation. Beloved community is our only salvation. So this obviously touches on what we were just talking about, this oneness, this underlying oneness, which actually is in all of the religious traditions mm -hmm. as well as mm -hmm. the golden rule that we, I mean, the, the wording is different, but it really mm -hmm. is the one teaching that is really in every single religion, which is treating others as we would wish to be treated. So what, what, what does this quote mean to you? Why did you include it in the book? Well, I included it. Included in the book, I'm thinking of another quote from a guru from India just came to my mind, but uh, his student came to him and asked him, uh, how should I treat others? And, uh, and the master said, what others? <laughs> That's and <great. laughs> that, that is deeper still. Right. And is how can we be together without ignoring our uniquenesses? without ignoring our pain, our sorrow, but also not ignoring our joy mm -hmm. and our capacity for what we can do together. And so for me, beloved community is a lived experience of, of being together uh, in deep ways with one another, in safety and in welcome and in imagination. Because I think we are, if, if, as we're able to heal this, we can unleash a tremendous amount of energy that is currently going into race. You know, while other people were, other countries were rebuilding their railroads and other systems around the world after World War II, we were investing in building separate toilets. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, this is stupid. Mm, to be yeah. quite honest, what a waste of money Yeah, for a story that for in, in Buddhism, we would call it a mental fabrication, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. mental fabrication of race. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a little bit about some of the inner work that we need to, that each of us needs to do really looking at intention, looking at our intent, the intent behind our action. And then I would also add to that list, what we were just talking about, really seeing the ways that we may not view each other as fully, uh, not grant each other our full mm -hmm. humanity. Mm -hmm. That's always, that's always something which I think comes up whenever we have an instinctive reaction to something. Yes. It's a very interesting place to look very, very interesting yeah. place to look. So what other inner work, do you think that that people need to need to do? Well, first on my list is um, around mindfulness of the body. And for me, in addition to the traditional practices which need to continue, uh, I think it's very important to get trained in trauma and resiliency. 
so that you have the tools and the skills to recognize your own activation is around race, mm -hmm. your own trauma memories around race and the consciousness of race and its suffering inside your body so that you learn how to recognize it, name it, accept it, embrace it, and transform it. Mm. And so, um, so that's, that's one very important thing. The second thing for me that's very important, a year ago I, I, I was in San Diego giving a talk for Martin Luther King's uh, birthday celebrations and I, I talked about Ruby Bridges um, and most people didn't know who she was. Mm. So the second thing for me is to under, to do your homework on actual history around race in the United States. Mm. And that's every race. Mm. Uh, the second, third thing for me is to look into your own roots as an individual, into your own history, your own culture, your own conditioning, both positive and negative, and choose the most positive energies and conditioning from your roots and bring those to the fore and put energy into not feeding what is unwholesome in your consciousness around race. Mm. Actually be conscious. The fourth thing is to be conscious when, when your racial awareness is not activated. When is it you've actually experienced a human-to-human -human encounter? And um, so we, we, we get so draped in these categories that we actually miss the miracle mm. of our own lives. That, for me, is the great tragedy in all of this. Yeah. Well, that, that is a really lovely idea, a really lovely practice to really recognize when we have these in, in um, interactions or these experiences that where we see each other in our full humanity, in addition to the ones where we don't, right? Exactly. <laughs> the ones where we are seeing someone come towards us and we want to cross the street um, out of fear. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also really appreciated you're talking about the body. You're talking about our embodied reaction, because as we talked about in the first segment, this idea of race itself, this word race can automatically trigger our autonomic nervous system, our, our fight, flight, or freeze response, mm -hmm. because it is so deep. And I think we all have fear about, about our, ourselves and what, what will this say about me? If I explore mm -hmm. this area, what will this mm -hmm. say about me and, and who I am? That's the way we often feel when we are trying to engage our shadow side, right? All right. of the parts of ourselves that we're not so proud of. Right, and that's so... part of our conditioning though. So to recognize yeah. we've been conditioned as individuals to take responsibility for society's failure. Hmm. And, uh, and society is putting that on us. And to understand how your social system and its own psychology wraps you in a trance that keeps you from a nervous system point of view, either in the freeze state or in the fight or flight state, but rarely activates and stimulates our ventral vega. Mm. 
So we live in a modern society that is just, and you know, if we don't get to the the ventral vega place, which meditation can deliver us to, we can't change because mm -hmm. we're stuck either in freeze, being immobilized, or in having our energy of mobilization either directed toward running away or fighting. Absolutely. And one of the things that you talk about in the book is as we begin to feel the embodied responses that we have to whatever stimulus it is, right. whether it's, it, it's, it's fear. Right. And as you said, and I'll underline what you said earlier, which is we have to, transformation only comes from a place of, uh, of safety. And so how is it that we can access then that place of safety within ourselves, which underline what you said, that meditation, having a regular meditation practice is so, I have found that so helpful for me personally. And oftentimes it opens up that space, right, between when there's a stimulus mm -hmm. and then I see my response to it yeah. before I'm just in the response and I'm yeah. overwhelmed by the response yeah. and I can't see it. And so there's this space that opens up and I can identify myself more with the witness consciousness mm -hmm. and I can see, wow, I'm having a, a physical yeah. response to that before I before it just overwhelms me and I get mm -hmm. into that, you know, fight, fight or flight place mm -hmm. and then it becomes really interesting right you're like wow that just really blew my socks off there <laughs> you know whatever this is that's happening wow that's interesting and I you know and I, I can I can look at that more and I can reflect on it and and try and understand where that came from before I get just swept away by the river of adrenaline that's pumping through my body and whatever, it, it becomes much more of a response. I can choose a response rather than just the knee-jerk reaction that we all are triggered into. Yeah, that's the power of meditation practice and taking it into the nervous system so that we become as sensitive as we are able at any moment to be aware of our body's response to life mm -hmm. around race. Mm -hmm. And I, I totally agree with y your description. That is, that is the benefit of the practice. Because it is, it is um, embodied. I wanted to get yes. back to that. And you talk about in the book, I think it's, is it Bessel? Is that how you say his name? Bessel van der Folk, is it? Uh, the body, oh, speaks, yeah. the body speaks its mind yeah, where the body it, knows, yeah. there, yeah, there are, you know, or the body keeps the score is yeah, it, the I, body keeps the score, body keeps the score. And so we have these embodied reactions that can get set off that are, that can point to things that are underlying our, our, con our consciousness. So these subconscious experiences that we may have had, or that we may have embodied based on these cultural seeds that are that have been present, as you said, for, you know, for hundreds of years. And then you also point to a tool that I used at the beginning when we were doing the little guided meditation is really using our breath mm -hmm. and really taking a few conscious breaths when that is happening to you, when your body's being thrust into this, mm -hmm. you know, uh, exaggerated response. Um, if you have that space and you're you're able to stay in the witness consciousness is getting yourself to breathe because <laughs> oftentimes it's you hold your breath, right? Oh, for sure. There's a, 
um, a meditation book by, written by a, a Thai teacher. I think his name is Buddha Dasa on mindfulness with breathing. And in it, he describes the skill of learning to recognize how your breath is responding to how you've been activated. So changes in the breath, shallow breathing, hyper breathing, etc., calm breathing, all those are indications of lived experience. Right. So you have another poem that I appreciated, When I Became Currency, which is on page 22. Um, as we're beginning to wind the program down, would you mind reading that for us? Um, not at all. When they came for me, I tried to contain my fear and my heartbreak. My bones longed for home as I, sick in the bottom of a ship, became dark currency carried over the sea. I was sold and sold again, a commodity, an instrument of profit seduced and sustained by greed, arrogance, and ignorance. Cold and beleaguered in a new land unknown, I tried to forget such horror in my bones, but the looks and whispers, even to this day, remind me. I am a class of color created by a colonial mind missing its own self-worth, but the dance of my ancestors in my bones have kept me awake and kept me alive. I live beyond such limiting constructs of mind. I am free because I am not confused. I am stardust awake. I am the earth and sky embracing all. I ride the wind with the eagle and the hawk. I flow with the rivers into all oceans. I touch the sun and am touched by the moonlight like all beings. I am nature herself, awake, powerful, resilient, generative. I offer the love of all my ancestors to your ancestors and the ancestors of all beings. I offer my presence like rain falling on the wise and the unwise, the troubled and the untroubled, the just and the unjust, so that the wounds of time may be healed in the dance of the flow of birth and death. Wow. That just had such amazing images in it. I just love the stardust and the moonlight and the sunlight and the the identification with the the one, with the with mm -hmm. the biggest with the biggest self that we all share. That's really, really beautiful. Thank you. Um, and with that, we've just about come to the close of the program. Did you have just one last thought you'd like to share with listeners? Um, yes, I do. I, I think to remember that um, whatever we practice in our internal life or do not practice in our internal life, spills out into history mm. in small ways and in large ways. 
I think the other thing I, I, I want to say is it's possible to change. Mm. And that our nervous system, which get inundated with negative impressions, negative sensations throughout our days, our practice must include ways to nourish the most positive qualities in ourselves. Mm. In neuroscience, we've learned for every negative seed that gets activated, so to speak, you need five times positive seeds to just balance it. So self-cultivation, self-care, self-love, self-practice as understood in society is not separate, but bringing a healthy part of ourselves to the whole, mm. a loving part of ourselves to right. the whole is what is possible for us. Mm, just so, so beautiful. Thank you so much. And with Thank that, you, with that, you've been listening to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you, Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. And I've been discussing uh, America's racial karma with Dr. Larry Ward. Um, his uh, book is America's Racial Karma: An Invitation to Heal. He is a Dharma teacher in Thich Nhat Hanh's Plum Village tradition and has been on peace-building missions with Thich Nhat Hanh, both nationally and internationally. His organization is the Lotus Institute, which you can find out at the website, out more about, and all of his programs, etc., at thelotusinstitute.org. Um, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Laura. Larry Ward. I've just, this has been a, a really wonderful conversation for me. I appreciate your time. It's been pleasant for me, too. We encourage you to join us for the many online programs offered by Yogacharya O'Brien and the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, including morning meditation, as well as afternoon meditation. And you can find out all about it at the website csecenter.org. Join me next time when uh, Yogacharya O'Brien will be back as we offer part two of the wisdom from Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya O'Brien, assistant producers Ann Hayes and Mickey Coronado, and as always, Jeff Comfort and Louis Pagan in the sound booth at unity.fm. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash IMDivine2022. 